BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, it's not often I get to do a really deep dive with somebody whose mind I am in awe of and whose career and thoughts and work I have tremendous respect for. But that's what we're going to do right now with Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent is The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics, or itself. His website's democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. And Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. It's always great having you on. Thanks so much for agreeing to just do a real deep dive here for the hour with us. I really appreciate it. I'd like to start out by asking what may be a really stupid question. I was watching, uh, Louise and I have been binge watching The Crown, and there's this moment in the movie where the British Prime Minister confronts the reality that the pound has to be devalued and, you know, what the consequences of that will be. They devalue the pound by 20% overnight. I was actually years ago in Israel when something very similar happened. And the result, of course, was that anything outside the country that was purchased became 20% more expensive. And the comment in the movie was England just became 20% poorer. I realize that's not technically true, but you know, if I've got 100,000 bucks sitting in a savings account in the bank and the federal government says, okay, we're gonna devalue the currency by 20%, which by the way is a lot less than they've devalued our currency since 1980. But you know, overnight, we're gonna devalue it by 20%. So now I only have $80,000 worth of purchasing power with my $100,000. Where did the $20,000 worth of purchasing power go? What am I missing here in this question? Well, you're not missing anything. The answer, luckily, is very easy. The 20% lost by the British was gained by anybody wanting from another country to buy something British. Because if before I got $100,000 for whatever my currency was, I got 100,000 of the British currency, but after a devaluation of the British currency, it's worth less. My money, my American money, for example, is going to get me more British currency than it did before. In other words, the British, their currency is worth less. So if I'm an American and I have dollars, I can get more British pounds because they devalued. So what the British lose if they want to buy things from outside the country, folks outside the country gain the exact same amount because they now have a cheaper pound to pay for everything. So, for example, if you devalue the pound by 20% and you're an American who buys, for example, from Great Britain, Scotch whiskey, which comes from Scotland, Well, now, when you take your dollar, you're not going to get as many British pounds as you did before. You're going to get more because the British pound is now cheaper. It's become cheaper, so you get more of them. But the British price of the Scotch whiskey remains denominated in pounds. You get more pounds for your dollar, so your purchasing power has gone up the exact offset of the declining purchasing power of the British. And by the way, the idea of this, the economics behind it, is really quite simple. Because foreigners, 
now find that they can get more British pounds than they did before, because that's what devaluation means, everything in England looks to other people to be cheaper. Just like to the English, everything that they get from the rest of the world has now become more expensive because they have to give up more of their pounds to get the foreign currency. So the idea is it will stimulate English exports, because everybody wants to buy the now cheaper British goods, and it will stop the British from importing as much as they did, because everything costs them more since their currency is not as valuable as it once was. So from a nation's point of view, that seems like a rational way, now it may not be a functional way, but at least in theory, a rational way to deal with some of the problems of international trade. I mean, we've got other countries that, that have very specific obstacles to trade, from VAT taxes to tariffs to you know, standards that our exported goods can't meet. And so we have this huge balance of payments uh, deficit. We import more than we export. Is devaluing your currency a reasonable way to deal with that trade problem and encourage you know, factories to come back to the United States, uh, US, domestic U.S. production? Is this something that we should consider or pursue? Or are the side effects of it so draconian or so drastic or so destructive that it should be avoided at all costs unless you're forced into it as the British were? Well, usually the answer to that is it's a political struggle. It turns out that the same people that are getting advantaged in some way by a devaluation are also offset by the people who are hurt by it inside your own country. So, for example, if you're an exporter, let's take the, the, your example of devaluing the British pound. If you're a British company that sells in the rest of the world, you're going to love this because all that the government has done will make your goods, which continue to have the same price in British pounds that they always did, they will appear to be cheaper because people outside the country will have to give up fewer of their currency to get the British pound because it was devalued. So you as an exporter, you will do very nicely. You're going to have more business. You're going to have more customers. But now let's take a look at an importer in England. For example, a company that buys, I'll pick something, butter from Denmark, because there is a lot of that. You're now, if you're in Britain, you're going to have to give up more of your currency to get a pound of Danish butter than you did before. So consumers, for example, in England, who buy imported goods are going to face a real shock because they're all going to go up by 10 or 20 percent in the face of a devaluation. So it's good news for the British exporter. It's bad news for the British importer. And then you look at the rest of the society and see, are you more affected by the rising price of imports? Or are you more affected by the growing demand for the country's exports? And that's going to be different. Different communities, different regions, different industries are going to be very differently affected. And that's why you will always find, if you do the work, that before any devaluation, there are major conflicts in the parliament, in Congress, uh, at the executive level, between the lobbyists coming from those who will be hurt by a devaluation and push against it, versus those who will be helped by a devaluation and push for it. And whether or not you get the devaluation is really simply determined by the relative strengths of the two sides. Hmm. And so it's as much a political problem as an economic one? Is that how these typically play out? I would go further. I would say it's mostly a political problem. Devaluation is somehow always on the agenda. There are always some industries that are having a hard time that would here based in this country. And they will go to the government, for example, and say, to be stark about it, look, you either devalue and thereby we can sell goods around the world, we'll have a big demand for them. But if you don't do it, I'm going to close the factory and move overseas 
because I can't make it any other way. So you have not just given me the devaluation so I could be more profitable. This you have the Tom Hartman program. Yeah, I got it. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolf. We'll be right back. So, Professor Wolf, when I was 16, 17 years old, I was working in East Lansing, paying for my college tuition, paying for my $35 car, paying my rent, which was, uh, as I recall, 35 bucks a month or maybe $40 a month uh, for an apartment across the street from Michigan State University. And I was doing this with a job at Bob's Big Boy, washing dishes and occasionally cooking for $2.30 an hour, as I recall. This would have been like 1966, 67, 68. Today, the minimum wage is no longer $2.30 an hour, and rent for a one-bedroom efficiency apartment across the street from MSU is no longer less than $50 a month. Is what we have had since the 60s here in the United States technically a devaluation, literally a devaluation. It seems like a step-by-step process. How is that different from what Britain did when in one day they chopped 20% off the value of the pound? Okay, it's, it's a very, it's a classic question. Economists have worried about this for a long time. And it has basically been resolved by being careful about a definition. Devaluing a currency is very narrow. It simply means changing the value of a currency in relationship to other currencies in the world. It's not comparing the price of something before and after another date or comparing the price of one good to another. It's comparing the value of a dollar in relationship, say, to a euro or a Japanese yen or any other currency. That's what devaluation means. When you talk about money losing its value in relationship to goods and services, like the rent you talked of or the, the pay you got for working at the, at the restaurant, etc., that we use a different word for. That's the depreciation, it's called, of the currency. So those are completely different things. One is the relationship of money to the goods you buy in your life, the goods and services. Think of it as the relationship between money and the objects you use money to purchase. That's depreciation. That is separate from the relationship between whatever money you use and the other monies that are floating around the world. That's called the devaluation when you change that. Right. So we're talking depreciation. Is, is inflation a symptom of depreciation or vice versa? No, it's exactly the flip side. That's right. A depreciating currency, another way to say that my de- currency is depreciating is to say that I'm going through an inflation. Because an inflation means that a dollar, because you're raising prices, a dollar gets you fewer and fewer things. In that sense, the value of the dollar in relationship to objects is depreciating. It doesn't buy you as much. If I raise the price of a hamburger, I double it. Well, then my dollar won't get me the hamburger it once did because the price has gone up. So the value of my dollar in relationship to objects, like a hamburger, has depreciated. That can go on without there being any necessary change in the value of the dollar in relationship, say, to the Turkish lira or to the Russian ruble or anything else. Right. We'll continue this conversation. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes 
into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tom Hartman University Book Club reading today from Screw, the Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It. This is from uh, one of the last chapters, Chapter 13. It's titled Setting the Rules of the Game in the subchapter Gaming the System. If government can create conditions that cause a middle class to emerge by implementing fair rules for business, progressive taxation, free public education, the opposite is also true. Government can create a corporatocracy by deregulating business, by cutting taxes on extreme wealth, and by privatizing as much of the commons as possible. Conservatives call this starving the beast. Here's how you starve the beast. You put through tax cuts for the rich, which cuts back the revenues of the federal government to the point that if you got rid of all the social programs, you'd have a balanced budget. No more Social Security, no more spending for education, no more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. Let the government simply keep the armies, prisons, and police. Let's shrink government. That's their philosophy. When you cut all those social programs, you lose the middle class and in its place create a very small wealthy elite and a large underclass of starvation wage workers. You lose democracy and instead create corporatocracy. You change the rules of the game. We the people lose and the feudal lords win. Cons have been winning this particular game of Starve the Beast since Reagan first started seriously playing it in 1981. They've done it in large part by lying to the American people. And they've had to do that because if they told the truth, the majority of Americans would throw them out of office. This is, after all, still a democracy. If the majority of us agree to get rid of Social Security so that only the wealthy can have retirement benefits and the old are left to fend for themselves, so be it. If a guy breaks his neck and can't work and the majority of us decide not to help people who are disabled and as a result he has to beg on the street, well, we can democratically decide, decide to screw him and ourselves. But the conservatives are not having this debate in an open and honest fashion. They're not asking we the people if we want to get rid of, for example, the Head Start program. They could ask, do we want to invest in our youth or not? We know that if we invest in educating the very young, fewer of them will become criminals. It will save us money over the long term. But the majority of us say, no, we would rather pay $50,000 to imprison them later than pay $300 to put them in a head start. Now, if we said that, then that's fine. It's a democracy. But that's not the way the cons are doing it. Instead of explaining why it would be better for Americans to give all their money to the corporate elite, they're giving huge tax cuts to the rich while pretending that the tax cuts benefit all Americans. Instead of arguing that Americans should not expect the right to health care or security in their old age, they are promoting a government crisis by handing to the rich the money we're borrowing from China, Japan, and Korea in the name of our grandkids. They're borrowing so much money from these countries that if they so much as blink, our currency could crash. And that's just what the most ideological of the conservative elite want. They want an economic crisis because they figure that's the only way they can force a cut in spending on social programs. In 2004, they thought that they had starved the beast enough, and they sent Bush out on the campaign trail to advocate getting rid of Social Security, privatizing it, putting it in the hands of Wall Street. But it didn't work. Turns out we the people apparently like Social Security. So the cons went back to starving the beast. Bush instead passed a new series of tax cuts with more to follow. The cons are trying to play the game so that the rich benefit while the rest of us lose out. They get tax cuts, we get program cuts. That's not a free market. That's a market that's being created for the benefit of the rich at the expense of the middle class. The question Americans have faced since the first arguments between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s was whether the game of business should be played with the primary goal of enriching the few 
or while allowing the few to enrich themselves, enhancing the quality of the life of the many. The cons suggest that if the rich win first, benefits will trickle down to the rest of us. Protecting workers, they say, will produce abnormalities and dislocations from a so-called free market. For example, they suggest that when minimum wages are fixed by government and labor can lawfully bargain to increase wages by increasing scarcity of labor through union actions, the result is an increase in prices, ultimately hurting the working person. But the economists they often cite in this thinking, David Ricardo, disagreed that raising wages first increased prices. He noted, quote, on the contrary, a rise of wages from the circumstance of the laborer being more liberally rewarded or from a difficulty of procuring the necessities on which wages are expended does not, except in some instances, produce the effect of raising price, but has a great effect in lowering profits, end of quote. In other words, all that talk about keeping wages down to keep prices down is a smokescreen. Business owners want to keep wages down to keep profits up. And when wages go down, profits do indeed go up. American wages have been falling steadily since Reagan first reintroduced conservative economics in 1980. And American corporations are generally more profitable than they've been in decades. In part, this is not only because wages are going down within the United States, but also because U.S.-level wages are being replaced by India and China-level wages through offshoring and outsourcing. But offshoring isn't a problem for American workers, the cons shout. It's the increase in productivity. American businesses need fewer workers because of automation. This is a tragic lie, and it's been bought hook, line, and sinker by most American politicians and even some economists. The book is screwed. Welcome back. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolff, the economist and author of The Sickness is the System. When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, his website, democracyatwork.info or rdwolf with two fs.com. Professor Wolff, we were touching on something that I had confused with devaluation, which is depreciation. That is the value of a currency going down relative to goods and services within the country. And I use the example of, you know, I used to work for minimum wage, $2.30 an hour is my recollection back in the 60s. And I could live just fine, but I couldn't live just fine today on $2.30 an hour. And that means that our currency has gone down in value. Why do countries depreciate their currency over time? It seems to me, looking at you know historical tables and whatnot, that depreciation has really stepped up since the 70s and 80s, and I'm wondering why that is the case here in the United States. And what brings it about? What's the advantage, disadvantage? Why do governments do this? How does this happen? Well, you know, depreciation of a currency, this experience that the dollar just gets you, and to take our country as an example, but the dollar gets you fewer and fewer things, that the price of everything is going up, some more, some less. There are usually multiple explanations, but it is at least, as we saw with devaluation, it's at least as much a political outcome as it is economic. Think of it this way. Every price, pretty much, is set by whoever is selling the thing whose price we're looking at. What is the price of a hamburger? Well, it's set by the hamburger company. To say that that they set it, that the corporations, the businesses, the capitalists set the price, doesn't mean they can set it at anything they wanted. If they charged $400 for the hamburger, obviously we wouldn't buy it. So they are constrained. They can't do just exactly what they want. They have to worry about being able to sell the stuff. No good to make something and price it so you can't sell it and you're out of business. So there are all these forces that shape what the seller thinks he or she can get for the object that they produce. Okay, now let's take a little look. It is clearly interesting for every capitalist to be able to charge a higher price than a lower one. That is mostly the objective. The only time a capitalist would be interested in selling a low, lowering the price is if they were sure that they could sell so many more of something that in a sense that would offset the fact that they lowered the price. So there's a kind of built-in bias 
most of the time to push for higher prices. But again, you have to be worried that if you raise them too much, then you won't sell, and that will undo whatever advantage the raised price might have given you. All right, now let's enter the next phase of the story. How much you can charge also depends on the incomes people have. How much do they have to spend? If people's incomes are constrained, then you can't raise your prices because the people can barely afford to pay what you're charging now. That becomes a constraint. We haven't had much of inflation in the last decade, in large part because our economy never really recovered from the Great Recession of 2008, 9, and 10, and that really put a crimp uh, in corporations. They could not raise prices because Americans could not afford it. Here's another factor that begins to enter the story. Foreign competition. American companies would have loved to raise the prices of all manner of things, but they couldn't in part because, to take the most important example, the Chinese economy was producing as good or better things for the same or lower price. When you have a competitor that powerful, then the pr raising the price becomes impossible in this country because everybody will shift from the, from you the seller the producer here in america to the equivalent producer at a lower price from china all the chinese needed to make this work was to have someone in the united states act as the distributor the chinese could produce the same or better quality they could do it at a lower price but they didn't have the distribution mechanism here in the United States to make the competition effective, to get kind of give a lesson, if you like, to every American producer, don't you dare raise your price, because if so you do, Walmart? the Chinese will get it. Well, you know who solved that problem for them? Walmart. Who's that? Walmart yeah, brought cheap Chinese goods to every corner of the United States, and that became a major shaper blocking American companies from raising their price. And here's the last one. If the government decides to flood the economy with money the way it has over the last few years, trying to cope with the economic problems we have, well, if you put a lot more money out there, that may, may, only word is may, may lead to people who get that money to start buying things. And if that happens, it would allow prices to go up which is why a lot of people worry that the Federal Reserve's pumping of mass You're money to into the, Tom the economy. Hartman program. Sorry, we just run, run right into these breaks. We'll be back with Professor Richard Wolf. We'll finish this thought and continue this conversation. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, Tom Harpin here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt 
and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. End quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Welcome back. Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us for the hour. We're talking about economics more broadly. Professor, we touched on depreciation, and I'd like to understand the relationship between that and inflation and deflation. I don't know if it was you who told me this years ago or somebody else who suggested that the two principal reasons that inflation can happen are, number one, that a government prints more money than there is you know, demand for goods and services, and with more money chasing fewer goods, the price of goods goes up, which doesn't happen in the United States so much because we're the world's reserve currency. So then the question is what happened in the 70s with the big inflation that we had, and the answer that I heard was if a core commodity to an economy the price of that goes up because of external factors, that will ripple through the economy and produce inflation. In this case, it was two consecutive oil embargoes by the Arabs in the late 60s and early 70s. First of all, fact check all that and my understanding of that. But then secondly, Margaret Thatcher in this movie, The Crown, argued that one of the reasons that inflation was happening in the United Kingdom, and again, this was the the late 70s, and I know Reagan echoed this in the first couple of years of the 80s, was not because the price of oil had gone up and not because the Fed had produced more dollars, but because the federal government was spending too much money and we have to go into austerity to stop inflation. And Jerry Ford, in fact, was promoting this with his whip inflation now buttons. Remember that, the wind buttons? So what's the real story here with all this stuff? All right. It's important to keep separate what's going on, what the issue is, and then the political spin that is always encumbering it. So if you're a libertarian, if you're all of those other things, you tend to want to make the government the bad guy. The government is doing the wrong thing. It shouldn't be messing around. It should keep itself away. It's just, you know, the endless recycling of laissez-faire. It goes back to Adam Smith, etc., etc. For those people, since inflation is a scary phenomena, prices going up, There are examples of extreme inflation, Germany in the 1920s, and so on. Uh, Then the story is told it's because the government is doing something bad, either pumping money into the economy or running deficits. Uh, The logic there is very weird. Let me explain. An inflation is an imbalance. It means that either there's more money running after too few goods, And think of it in a very simple way. It's you and I uh, have our kids with us, and we're in the park, and they want ice cream. And we go to the ice cream vendor, and it turns out that we've got five kids, but there's only two ice cream cones left. Question, how are you going to allocate? And before we can work out a system, how do we divide two ice creams among five children, you and I start bidding against each other. I say to the guy, well... I'll offer you a dollar more per ice cream cone if you give the two to me. No, says my friend, I'll offer you two dollars more. And though the price gets bid up because of the imbalance between the demand and the supply, more people have money with which to buy something than there is something to be bought. But that's all that makes an inflation happen. And of course, then the question becomes, it can either be that there's more money and the goods aren't there, or that there's lower quantity of goods, or a third possibility, that there isn't an imbalance, but that the people who sell are greedy. They want to jack up the price. They don't care if all kinds of people can't afford it. They're going to make enough money by jacking up the price to make it worth 
worthwhile for them to do so. And when inflations happen, you usually have all of those things going on. But the folks, for example, the business community that raises prices because they want more profits, surely do not want the public to know that. They want to blame somebody else. And a whipping boy in our culture, economically, is the government. That's how we have trained our people. If there's something going on that isn't good, always blame the government, never blame the capitalist or the economic system. That's been the mantra in our society for a very, very long time. But it doesn't pass muster uh, as logic. If corporations, for whatever reason, feel that they either must or they can raise the price, they do so. And one of the chief reasons is to make more money. But to explain to the population that the prices are going up, the things making it unaffordable for you to buy them, is happening because capitalists are greedy for more profits, that's not an allowable argument, even though it is logically absolutely impeccable. So the truth of it is, there are many things in an economy that create imbalances all the time between the demand for this and the supply of, the, of, of whatever the demand is for. And in that moment, whenever the demand exceeds the supply for whatever reason, you have a situation in which the seller is tempted to raise the prices and then you get the inflation. So I think you and I are both old enough to remember when gasoline was 25 cents a gallon. Um, and there were always four gas stations on a corner competing 24 cents, no, 23 cents. Um, why is gasoline no longer 25 cents a gallon? What has happened over this period of time? And was it the Arab oil embargo that really produced that wild inflation period that we had that, that uh, many people argue crippled the Jimmy Carter presidency? Well, I think it was mostly a political outcome. You had a very few countries, big oil companies, the ones we still know, Standard Oil and all of the others, dominating a market, being able through political power to bring oil up, particularly in the Middle East, but not only there, at a very low price and sell it at a much higher price, making big profits. But over time, the very poverty of the Middle East, the very poverty in places like Venezuela and all the other places that have oil, produced a demand that had to be met politically. You cannot keep, you know, it's the end of colonialism, basically. You cannot keep taking the oil out of these poor countries where masses of people are desperately poverty-stricken without a demand arising, hey... This is oil under our land. Why are we not benefiting? At that point, all of these governments, particularly in the Middle East, but again, not only there, began to go through a series of revolutions and political upheaval. Long story short, governments emerged there, which said to the oil companies, hey, you can't keep taking everything away from us and giving us next to nothing. You're going to have to give us not just a money to a few families to make them very rich. That had been going on all along. No, you're going to have to give us a much larger uh, payoff for getting access to our oil and our gas. And you have to, and you know you have to, because the cheap oil has made your economy develop a dependence on that oil because it was so cheap. You can't now suddenly cut us off. We kind of have you because you have developed your capitalist economies based on cheap energy. And so a deal was done. Okay, we at Standard Oil or we at Mobil or we at Texaco or whatever it was, we will give you way more money. And then what we're going to have to do to stay rich and profitable, here we go now, is to jack up the price of the oil that we charge to heat the homes in in North America and Western Europe to fuel the vehicles and all the rest. And that helped produce the inflation? Anti-colonialism, you get the inflation of energy prices. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. I thought that's where you were going with that. And, you know, which always, whenever inflation comes up on this pro, and, and forgive my jumping in, but I saw that the break, we were about to hit the break. Whenever this comes up, people always say, well, what about the gold standard? Or, uh, you know, it's the evil Fed or things like that. Let's, let's talk about that, too. This subject, I think, has a lot more depth than I had initially thought. Stick around. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolf. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. His latest book is The Sickness is the System. Capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or from itself. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure, but it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. 
We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. So, Professor Wolf, can you speak to the role of the Fed and, and also the gold standard? I get people calling in going, you know, FDR messed with the gold standard and then Nixon closed the gold window in 71 or 72. And therefore, all these terrible things have happened. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, again, I think it's mostly an ideological and political spin game. Who are you going to blame? The inflations are terrifying. When they get going, they're often very difficult to slow down. Prices keep going up. And, you know, when prices go up, people who are on fixed incomes, they are really screwed in this process because they can't increase their incomes to afford to pay the rising prices. So, for example, pensioners, people who are on a fixed payment because they finished a lifetime of work, and they're relying on their Social Security or their pension or whatever. These things never rise as fast as inflation. Some of them never rise at all. And so the inflation literally eats up the standard of living. You can see with the minimum wage. We haven't raised the minimum wage in a long time. Prices keep going up. And that means that what you can buy if you live on the minimum wage, as millions do, keeps shrinking. And so there are real victims of inflation. And so something has to be done lest those people say the obvious, which is, why do we live in an economic system that behaves like this? If nobody wants there to be an inflation, why do we have one? Well, the answer is, it's not true that nobody wants it. There are people who get advantages by raising prices. And if you permit that, if you allow that, well, then you're going to allow inflation. For example, for every argument you hear that the government pumps money into the economy and therefore we have an inflation, I can show you the exact same story run the other way, that what happened was companies raised prices. Now, what this meant was few people could afford to buy the stuff. Therefore, the stuff wasn't being purchased. Therefore, they were losing jobs. Why produce things that people can't afford to buy? So the government got frightened that this would mean a recession. So they threw in money to the system so that there would be enough money to pay for the things at a higher price. In other words, what the Fed does enables the private sector to cause an inflation. It isn't the cause, it's the result, if you like, of how the private sector works. You know, in the Middle Ages, when these kinds of things first began, the Roman Catholic Church, the universal church in Europe at the time, said the following, the price of everything should be what the church called a just price. In other words, biblical justice should be used to determine what is a reasonable price. It's the opposite of the notion in capitalism 
that a, a seller should charge, quote, whatever the market will bear. This kind of idea that you should be out there getting the best price you possibly can is what fuels many of the inflations that we have seen in the world. But you can't say that because it becomes a criticism of the system. Remarkable. Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf with us. His latest book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics in Itself. rdwolf.com, democracyatwork.info. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Professor Wolf is here with us. Professor Wolf, number one, how does the gold standard fit into all of this, or even should it, uh, this conversation? And number two, when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan both said that the way to stop inflation was to basically gut the social safety net to reduce payments to people on pensions or the needy or the hungry. Was that just pure political BS or is there something to that? That's political BS, pure. I don't know what pure BS is, but whatever you mean by that, yes. Listen, Margaret Thatcher and people like her were against the social safety net when prices were going nowhere, when prices were going down, and when prices were going up justifying their hostility to government support for the victims of capitalism, blaming that on inflation. I mean, it's just silly. It, it has nothing, the one has nothing to do with the other. You can take care of people if you want to. It doesn't require an inflation. It doesn't cause an inflation. These two things have nothing to do with each other. What you see here are people with a political agenda grabbing on to whatever is the hot news of the, of the moment, hoping to generate in people a notion, gee, if you're concerned about the hot item in the news, well, then you should line up behind whatever our political agenda happens to be. The reality is the following. You can stop an inflation any time you want. I'm going to give you the example of Richard Nixon, hardly a radical. In 1971, he gets on the television uh, and the radio, and he says to the American people, we're having an inflation, it's not good, and as of tomorrow morning, we're not going to have one because I'm declaring a, what he called a wage price freeze. And he said, anybody who raises a price as of tomorrow morning, you will be arrested and you'll be thrown in jail because it's a crime. And guess what? Prices stopped going up. There is nothing mystical, nothing fatalistic about an inflation. If you're serious and you don't want one, it's easy to stop because you can say to every seller of anything, you are frozen where you are. That's why it's called a freeze. You can't raise the price anymore. And now we're going to solve our economic problems, producing and distributing goods and services in a rational way that meets our needs. And we're not going to be held hostage by what particular sellers do when they fool around with prices. It's also a recognition, if I could conclude, that letting individuals make a decision like raising a price can only be done if you pretend that these are not social decisions. But of course they are. Letting people raise a price affects everybody who depends, directly or indirectly, on that good whose price is being raised. Once you see the political and social consequences of setting prices, then the question arises, why do we allow that to be done by individuals seeking their own profit rather than in a democratic way where the prices of things are shaped according to what we think the community as a whole needs. Thus, things like the minimum wage. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book today is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Giridharadas. 
This is from the prologue. All around us in America is the clank, clank, clank of the new in our companies and economy, our neighborhoods and schools, our technologies and social fabric. But these novelties have failed to translate into broadly shared progress and the betterment of our overall civilization. American scientists make the most important discoveries in medicine and genetics and publish more biomedical research than those of any other country. But the average American's health remains worse and slower improving than that appears in other rich countries. And in certain years, life expectancy actually declines. American inventors create astonishing new ways to learn, thanks to the power of video and the Internet, many of them free of charge. But the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading today than in 1992. A successful society is a progress machine. It takes in the raw material innovation and produces broad human advancement. America's machine is broken. When the fruits of change have fallen on the United States in recent decades, the very fortunate have basketed almost all of them. For instance, the average pre-tax income of the top tenth of Americans has doubled since 1980. That of the top 1% has more than tripled. And that of the top 0.001% has risen more than sevenfold, even as the average pre-tax income of the bottom half of Americans has stayed almost precisely the same. These familiar figures amount to three and a half decades worth of wondrous head-spinning change with zero impact on the average pay of 117 million Americans. Meanwhile, the opportunity to get ahead has been transformed from a shared reality to a prerequisite of already being ahead. Among Americans born in 1940, those raised at the top of the middle class and the bottom of the lower middle class shared a roughly 90% chance of realizing the so-called American dream of ending up better off than their parents. Among Americans born in 1984 and maturing into adulthood today, the new reality is split screen. Those raised near the top of the income ladder now have a 70% chance of realizing the dream. Meanwhile, those close to the bottom, more in need of elevation, have a 35% chance of climbing above their parents' station. And it's not only progress and money that the fortunate monopolize. Rich American men, who tend to live longer than the average citizens of any other country, now live 15 years longer than poor American men, who endure only as long as men in Sudan and Pakistan. Thus, many millions of Americans on the left and right feel one thing in common, that the game is rigged against people like them. Perhaps this is why we hear constant condemnation of the system, for it is the system that people expect to turn fortuitous developments into societal progress. Instead, that system in America and around the world has been organized to siphon the gains from innovation upward, such that the fortunes of the world's billionaires now grow at more than double the pace of everyone else's, and the top 10% of humanity have come to hold 90% of the planet's wealth. It's no wonder that the American voting public, like other publics around the world, has turned more resentful and suspicious in recent years, embracing populist movements on the left and the right, bringing socialism and nationalism into the center of political life in a way that once seemed unthinkable, and succumbing to all manner of conspiracy theories and fake news. There is a spreading recognition on both sides of the ideological divide that the system is broken and has to change. Some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laughable and self-serving. They've tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. All around us, the winners in our highly inequitable status quo declare themselves partisans of change. They know the problem, and they want to be part of the solution. Actually, they want to lead the search for solutions. They believe that their solutions deserve to be at the forefront of social change. They may join or support movements initiated by ordinary people looking to fix aspects of our society, but more often these elites start initiatives of their own, taking on social change as though it were just another stock in their portfolio or another corporation to restructure. The book Winners Take All by Anand Giridharis. So what about the gold standard? We have about a minute and a half. Well, you know, people have always wanted there to be some, they, they kind of understand, people always have, 
that a corrupt society can play with the money of everything, play with the price of everything. It always has. So they wanted to take it away from being this tool that a evil king or a corrupt government could use or corrupt businesses. And so they wanted something objective. And so gold seemed to be, okay, something that, yes, it's mined out of the ground, but there it sits hard and fast and everlasting. Let's link the money to that. By the way, you know what's being promoted these days as the substitute for gold? Bitcoin, Bitcoin. cryptocurrencies, again, because you can imagine maybe with blockchain technology, you can do something that will make it less of a tool for people to use to enrich themselves at the society's expense. There is no shortcut. If you want the system to work for the people as a whole, you've got to democratize it because no gimmick will do that for you. In other words, the gold standard isn't going to save us. Never did. Absolutely. Never did. It doesn't now. That's right. And, and blockchain won't either. Fascinating right. stuff. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for the deep dive today. I really appreciate it. It's great talking with you. Thank you very much, Tom. Same here. Thank you. And uh, be sure to check out Professor Wolf's newest book, The Sickness is the System. And you can check out his websites, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 